Acts 16, 1 through 5, Paul came to Derbe in the Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by, his, by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, and he circumcised them because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. So um, in 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul calls Timothy my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Now, what that suggests is that perhaps he was one of Paul's own converts when he went to these cities of Lystra and Derby. A lot of people think Timothy was from actually from Lystra, and he had most probably become a Christian on Paul's earlier visit to that town in Acts 16 and 1. It says a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So he was the son of a Jewish woman who had also become a Christian. His father was Greek, and the way in which it's described suggests to some that he was maybe not, not just not a Christian, but maybe he had already even passed away. So we know his mother's name was called Eunice, and that he also had a Christian grandmother called Lois. Evidently, the whole family had been converted. And by the way, when I take communion every morning, I always uh, bring up the scripture that says, uh, when Paul said to the jailer, and you and your whole, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your whole household will be saved. So um, to me, even though that's a description of what Paul was doing with the jailer, I take that as a promise. And I believe God as a promise. And so every day I say, Lord, thank you, because I did call upon you, and I was saved. And I'm believing for the rest of the, uh, the promise is that me and my household will be saved. Not just knowing God in the, in the, um, in the uh, limited sense of salvation, but, but made whole, spirit, soul, body, every dimension of their life. That's what I'm believing for. Well, we kind of see that happen in this household. This household all got saved. So anyway, Paul comes back, and his attention is drawn to this young man, Timothy, because he was a man of a good report, uh, and the Christians in the neighborhood, both in Lystra and Iconium, those cities that were surrounding them, all gave Timothy a good report. Now, how many of you know a good reputation is an essential qualification for Christian leadership? The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, it says, and he will win, uh, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Uh, bind them around your neck, uh, uh, and what's the rest of it? Enter your heart, and they shall win you a good name in the sight of God and man. So you want to have a good name in the sight of God, which we do through Christ and living for Christ, but it's also important to have a good name and reputation in the sight of men. Right? So listen, how many of y'all know that the person that you live with is imperfect? <laughs> You're not, but we can all agree on the person that you live with is imperfect, right? How many of you know that? <laughs> You're all raising your hands, right? The only thing you don't realize is the person you live with is raising their hands too. We all make mistakes, every last one of us, right? We are striving to perfection. That means we're striving towards maturity. 
but we make mistakes. Sometimes when I'm driving in Pearland, I don't like to go to Pearland because there's a lot of traffic, and it's something about traffic that just absolutely irritates me and gets my goat. I mean, it raises my ire. I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to lay on that horn. What's wrong with you? Right? <laughs> and then the next thing you know is probably somebody you go to church with. So you don't do want to do that. Has that ever happened to you before? Yeah, it's happened to you before. Oh, I, I just recognized you. No, you didn't. You were mad at him. Listen, we all make mistakes, right? Here's the thing. Uh, as you're striving towards perfection, when you make a mistake, if you want to have a good reputation, you have to correct your mistakes. Right? Don't just go on as if nothing has happened. You go back and you say, I was wrong or I got out of line, I'm so sorry, will you forgive me? Very simple. We're not talking about that you can't have a relationship and not doing that. I'm talking about if you want to have a good reputation, right? You've got to do the best you can to live honorably, to live a good life in front of people, to be honest. But when you make a mistake, you also got to do the best you can to try to, um, you know, to, what's the right word, um, ask people to forgive you, to make corrections, to do what you have to do to make sure that you rebuild that bridge that was damaged when you got upset or angry or whatever the case may be, right? It's not that hard. What we're really dealing with is pride, right? Or maybe we never learn how to do that, and when we, when we just go off, we just always uh, just, you know, and I've done this with my wife. I'm, I'm, you know, we've got mad at each other, and then we just never thought about it again. We go on. We just forgive each other, but we never said anything. But that's not really the best way to do things. You, you guys that are married, you know what I'm talking about, right? Is this, you, oh, we, that never happened. Oh, let's just go on like it never happened. And we do, right? Sometimes I'm like, God, I forgive her. And she's like, you, you should see what she's praying about you. <laughs> but anyway, but the best thing to do is to correct, right? Because people will forgive, will forgive, but it just makes it, makes it a lot easier if you want to have a good reputation to correct your mistakes. Anyway, Timothy had a good reputation, right? And a good reputation among people is a necessity, especially if you're going to be a church leader, Acts 6 and 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. That means of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. In 1 Timothy 3 and 7, it says about Timothy, moreover, uh, well, actually, it says about people that are in leadership, he, he must be well thought of, not just by the people in the church, by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So Paul wished to have Timothy as a companion and assistant in his missionary work, and his position would presumably have been the same as that of John Mark earlier. And if you don't know about John Mark, John Mark was Barnabas's nephew or something, and he took him on the journey when they first went out on a missionary trip with Paul. They got into some kind of confrontation I believe it was uh, Cyprus, maybe been the, the first place that they went to. And then um, Paul, Paul was like, you son of the devil, I bind you. And, he, and it was an incredible uh, display of power. John Mark was like, I'm out of here. Okay. So, but he started out as their assistant. So maybe that's what uh, Timothy was going to be, like John Mark. He was going to be an assistant to Paul and help out, you know. But the problem was, um, and it was a difficult problem that had to be reconciled, 
um, with the people that they were going to be reaching. As the son of a mixed marriage, Timothy had an unusual position. You see, Jews are not supposed to marry Gentiles. Not supposed to happen. You know, but if it did happen, the children were regarded as Jewish and therefore liable to be circumcised. Now, this hadn't taken place in the case of Timothy. His mother had not taken her Jewish responsibilities seriously, or perhaps her husband had refused to sanction the circumcision of the child. So there's no mention of a synagogue in Lystra, and it may well be that Timothy's mother had ceased to be a practicing Jew, but Paul's mission was bound to bring Timothy into contact with other Jews in the area. You know, anybody ever here lived in the, in the country? Anybody here live in the country? In the country, you know everybody. <laughs> All right, let me ask you, is Jones Creek country? It is. <laughs> you know everybody, right? If you don't know them personally, you know who they are. So they knew... We're good, right? <laughs> okay, all right. So, <laughs> so uh, you have permission to make fun of me as well. Okay. Um, so uh, the thing is, you know everybody. So every, everybody in the surrounding area who Paul wanted to, huh? Okay, right? <laughs> Okay, so here's the thing. Here's the thing about, about uh, Timothy. Everybody knew who he was. And they wanted to reach all the Jews in the area. But everybody knew that Timothy had not been circumcised. So Paul circumcised him. And you say, what's the problem? The problem was that the message that they were preaching seems to contradict what Paul did. Wow, what are we going to do about this? Well, how are we going to reconcile this? Why would Paul do that? Paul is the chief proponent of grace and living life by grace, and circumcision was the first major step of coming under law. Why would Paul do this? Well, uh, it's something we have to look at. So we'll start by, by the first point that we're going to look at. is The first point is free in Christ, okay? Acts 16 and 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and took him, circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For They all knew, not some of them or most of them, they all knew his father was a Greek. So Paul's action has been hotly contested by people that study these things for a living and has caused a lot of controversy in Christian circles and in Christian literature. According to one school of thought, he was acting in a dishonest manner since he regarded he himself regarded and wrote about circumcision as a matter of unimportance. In Galatians 5 and 6, it says, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. In fact, Paul positively forbade Gentiles to submit to a right which could be re regarded as a means of salvation by works. Galatians 5 and 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. 
So then the question is, if we're free in Christ, how could Paul, who was so against circumcision for Gentile believers, here subject Timothy to this Jewish rite? Interesting, isn't it? Second point, a servant to all. So I'm going to bring in another passage here, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. We'll touch on it more than once. But for, Paul says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, he's talking about Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. So, in Timothy's particular situation, things were a little bit different. We're not really uh, entering into a right for the sake of salvation. Timothy, see, in reality, because of the mixed marriage, is really classified as a Jew. Because of his mother's mixed marriage, he may have been regarded as illegitimate, but in any case, it was absolutely essential to give him good standing in the eyes of the Jews among whom he would be working. So it was a matter not of um, how you were going to get saved. It was really a cultural thing, and it was a matter of, of, uh, of uh, acceptance, being accepted by the people that he was going to minister to so that he could have an audience with them. Romans 1 and 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In Romans 10, 14, and 15, it says, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. My point is this. Of what good is it to be a proclaimer of good news that the people you want to reach won't give you an audience? They won't listen to you. They turn you off before you ever get a chance to share with them. What we're dealing with in this passage is not a question about being subject to the law with salvation based on keeping it. Timothy is circumcised by Paul, not because it was necessary for salvation, but in order to be given an audience by the people he wanted to be able to reach. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So, a lot of times we just see circumcision, law, salvation by works. We're not under law. We're under grace. But we don't realize there's another principle. They, none of them thought that, hey, we're going under law again. What, what, what they thought was that, hey, we <laughs> Timothy, because there was another guy named Titus that Paul would not uh, uh, circumcise later on down the road because he was a Greek and who he was reaching was not Jews. He was taking Titus to reach Gentiles. Different situation right? Um, let me see another way I can describe this. If I go to a cowboy church, I'm going to go buy me a hat and some boots and a cowboy jacket and some jeans. I'm going to go in in such a way that I adapted to their culture. Now, I'm not doing anything that violates my principles, 
or I'm not doing anything sinful. Because some people will take this and say, well, if you want to be reached by people that are doing drugs, you've got to do drugs. No. We're not talking about that at all. Right? But if you want to be reached, you want to reach people that are on the streets, you don't want to dress uh, like, a, a, you know, in a, in, a, in a, what, three, you don't want to dress in a suit and tie and, and, and real nice shoes and all that kind of stuff. Not that you can't, but you're not really going to have an audience. They're going to label you, they're going to peg you, whatever the case may be. So you want to be able to reach them, and so you have to accommodate yourself not your character, not your morals, but you have to accommodate yourself to, in such a way where they will give you an audience. Right? We're not talking about, I'm not talking about in the church, I'm not talking about the church needs to devalue its principles and its message and water down what it's saying so people will come. And No, I'm not talking about that at all. Truth is truth. And I'm not talking when you go out there that you, you change the truth because Paul preached truth. When he went to the Jews, he was stoned. He was beaten. He was stabbed. Um, well, I don't know if he was stabbed, but he was, he was, uh, he was uh, um, um, uh, uh, afflicted over and over again because he told the truth. Right? So he's not compromising truth. What he is doing is gaining an audience. Why does he want to gain an audience? Because he wants to win them to Christ. All right, Acts 16 and 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Now, as we noted, Paul circumcised Timothy to have an audience with the Jews. Neither he nor Timothy were forced to do so. Paul didn't force Timothy, and Timothy wasn't forced by Paul. It didn't happen that way. In their freedom in Christ, they chose or elected to restrain their freedoms for the benefit of the gospel. This is the whole point of this message, right? Because everything today in culture is also prevalent in the church. And the prevalency of the, the culture today, and it's very strong in the church as well, is it's about me, myself, and I. It's not about what's best for the other. It's about what's best for me, right? This is what I got to do to get to heaven. But what about your brother and sister? What if what you do will get you to heaven, but it will lead them to hell? Paul would say, I'm not going to do it, Right? The culture today is, I don't care about that. It's just about me. But what are we talking about? We're talking about the difference between self-serving and self-sacrificing. You see, Paul and Timothy were willing to sacrifice their freedoms that they might set other people free. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So their chief driving motivation was to somehow win the loss to Christ. The irony of the whole thing is they were sent on a mission to inform the towns where they had gone and preached before that the Gentiles were not required to be circumcised and to keep the law to become a part of the body of Christ. This was a resolution of a controversy the church had, uh, had been through that when they got together in Jerusalem, they actually made a decision. And James, who was the leader of the church, says, 
this is what I've decided. Let's, let's, let me show you what that is. Acts 15, 4 through 6. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles. We're talking about Paul and, and, and um, Silas and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party, the Pharisees, as Paul and Barnabas, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. See, there was, to us, this is a mute point, but to them, it was very, very important. And it was something they were working through. It's something they were struggling with. It's something they had to somehow come to, a, to find the mind of God on. So in Acts 15, 19 through 20, James gets up and he says, My judgment, after some testimony, after what, what was said, James gets up and says, my, testament, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them, they got some things we need them to do, but they don't have to be circumcised, they don't have to come under the law. But they do need to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Okay? So, once that decision had been made, it says in 25, verse 25 of the same chapter, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men, send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We therefore send with them Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you these same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. And if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. What you don't see in there is you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Not there. The church had made this incredible decision. Yet Paul, in delivering this message, finds Timothy and says, I want to take Timothy with me and circumcises him. But why is he doing that? Well, what we've just seen, he's not doing it because he needs to get saved and come under the law of Moses and follow the Jewish law and rituals and rites and all. No, he did it so that he could be, have an audience with the Jews to teach them what Jesus did at the cross of Calvary, that they might have salvation, not by law, but by grace. In 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 11, 1, Paul says, all things are lawful for me but not all things are helpful, and the context is for you. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. You see, here Paul has posed the same sort of question by the Corinthians. Why do we have to restrain our freedoms for others who are having a problem I don't have? In this case, the issue was eating meat sacrifice to idols. Well, why would they eat meat sacrificed to idols? Well, you got to know the context, okay? So in these cities, they were all incredibly idolatrous cities. I mean, they had idols to everything. The Greek gods, you know, Diana, Artemis, they were idols in the market. I mean, everybody, everything. The, the culture was saturated with idols. Sacrifice was a way of, of life for these people. So they would take birds and goats and lambs and sacrifice, but obviously we know, and they knew, that idols don't eat. They definitely don't eat meat. <laughs> so what do you do with this meat that's consistently sacrificed to an idol? 
they sell it in the marketplace. And since it had already been sacrificed, they sold it cheaper, right? So, caught problem in the Christian church, and the Christian church is, hey, you know what? It's cheaper for us to buy this meat, but is it a problem because it was sacrificed to an idol? Some people were saying, there's no such thing as an idol. It's no problem. Go ahead and eat. Other people were saying, what do you mean there's no such thing as an idol? Those things are demons. We're eating things sacrificed to demons. And so what you have is you have a conflict going on in the church that there needs to be resolution to. Paul is basically saying, I know that there's no such thing as an idol. I know that. We're talking concerning me. I can eat it without, with freedom of conscience. Doesn't bother me. Give it to me. No problem. But I also know there's a lot of people in the church that have a problem. So here's what I'm going to do. If it's going to cause a problem to somebody else, I'm going vegan. <laughs> I don't think he's saying, I'm going to stop eating meat. He's saying, I won't eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. You hear what I'm saying? How many of us would say, I don't care what they think. Nobody's telling me what to do. I'll do whatever I want. Me and Jesus are good with it. Well, is he good with it if your attitude is self-interest, self-serving? Is he really good with it? Because the Bible says that he, we are to be like him. And he, even though he had no sin, he that knew no sin became sin for us. And we're supposed to be like him. Right? So shouldn't we more and more, if we're becoming like him, begin to develop an attitude of not self-interest and self-service, but more and more self-sacrifice should become evident in each and every one of us if we're drawing closer to the Lord? 1 Corinthians 9, 3-12. through 12, I, I told you we'd come back and revisit. It's, this is my defense. Those who would examine me. <clears throat> do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? See, Paul worked for a living. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Verse Sandy. <laughs> Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the corn. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? Basically, he's saying, yes, it was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So what he's basically saying is, we have a right to do all of this. Biblically, we can justify it. Uh, we can justify it by how we live life culturally. There's all these different ways that we can justify it. But then Paul says, nevertheless, just because we have a right doesn't mean we have to use our rights. We have not made use of this right. Why? 
We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, it's my right. Yes, it might be your right. But what Paul is saying is that just because it's your right doesn't mean that you can't refuse to use it. Why would I... (laughs) That's pretty good. Right. Okay, so why would we refuse to use it? Because it benefits someone else when I do that. Doesn't the Bible say about love? Aren't we supposed to love God with all our... Yeah, yeah, I love God with all my heart. So I do, I do, I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. But it also says, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? If you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you are a liar. And you tell not the truth. Right? So, love, if love were defined, Paul does define love in 1 Corinthians, but one of the ways he defines it is love seeks not its own. Love seeks the benefit of the other. Right? So, do you see how Paul summed up this passage? What did he say again? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. What was one of the most profound importance to Paul was of most profound importance to Paul was winning others for Jesus. He wasn't about defending his freedoms, but about freeing others. If having an inroad to others coming to know Christ required that he curb his freedoms, then that's what he was going to do. And isn't that really what Jesus taught us as well through his life, death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf? John 13, I'm going to read 2 through 5 and then 12 through 17, and I'll have that up there for you. During supper, when the devil had already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come back from God and was going back to God. (laughs) It's like full awareness of who he was. Son of God. God in the flesh. Rose from supper. And he sent out a thunderbolt and said, everybody bow before me. No, it doesn't say that in Scripture. What does it say? He laid aside his garment... He took a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet. And and wiped them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And we jump down to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, I want you to know that it's not a pleasant experience. In this culture, it was a farming culture. There were no paved streets. Animals went where the people went. So when they walked in the mud, 
They walked in uh, uh, fecal matter. They walked in urine. All of that was mixed together. That was in their shoes because they had sandals, if not walked barefooted. And so when you had to wash their feet, you know, most of us were concerned about having a little odor. Some of y'all aren't concerned. You should be. No, just kidding. <laughs> but the concern back then was a little bit different. You understand what I'm saying? And so Jesus said, you know, you call me teacher and Lord, you're right. If I then, your Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This wasn't a ritual that you do. I'm not saying it's, there's nothing good about it and it's not a good thing to do, but I'm saying this wasn't a ritual that you do every so often when you feel uh, like you really want to get closer to God. No, this was a daily thing that they did it was, a, it was something that the lowest servant of the household, if they had servants, was assigned to do. It was the most menial, the most unwelcome, unpleasant job. And Jesus said, I washed your feet to teach you to wash somebody else's feet. No, no, I want my feet to be washed. And Jesus said that would be probably, if we gathered from this, is that that would probably be what you thought Jesus would say, but that's not what he did. He said, no, you bow down. You know, to wash somebody's feet, you've got to bow down. You've got to get low. Then the Bible says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, right? Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When you wash somebody else's feet, you are physically lowering yourself and serving them in the most profound way. You are denying your rights and what you think you may want to do so that you can bless someone else. Right? And he goes, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you know them. Is that what it says? Blessed are you if you hear about them. No, and we learned this the other day. Where do the blessings come? In the doing. Blessed are you if you do them. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And again, he didn't die for himself, he died for you and me. Greater love is no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. So, interesting, when we look at Paul circumcising Timothy, you might, at first glance, think Paul is, and I thought when I first started studying, not, not, 
recently, but I'm saying when I looked this a long time ago, this is something right about this. I don't understand. Why would Paul do this? It says in Galatians, it says this. But when you look a little deeper and you begin to realize he wasn't doing it for uh, a question of salvation and coming under the law. He was doing it so that he could reach people for Jesus. He was denying his right, Timothy's right, not to go through this procedure, not to do these things. He was denying their freedoms for what? So that others might be set free. The principle is not self-interest, but self-sacrifice. Now, you know, that's not an issue that we face today, right? I'm talking about the, the literal issue is not an issue that we face today, but we still deal with the same problems. We still deal with the same egos, the same um, uh, clinging to it's my right and what I want to do and, and I need to I'll be this way and you need to take care of me and selfishness and self-regard and self-promotion, self-interest. You know, when we get saved, we come out of the world and that's what's in the world. And when we come out of the world and we come into the church, if we tend to think that we're going to be all of a sudden, everything's going to be hunky-dory when we get in here, no, we're just still the same people. <laughs> but we've got to grow in our relationship with God. As we grow in our relationship with God, then you become what you behold. It's a principle in Scripture. What you focus your attention on is what you will reproduce. And that's why it's important for us as a church to turn away from the deeds of darkness and turn completely towards the light. Because if you keep your eyes on the world and what you came out of, you're going to continue to perpetuate what was in the world. But if you focus your attentions on the Lord and His Word, then you will become what you behold. doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time. But what does it look like when we become more like Jesus? It looks like love. And love looks like sacrifice. Bottom line. Why are we fighting with one another? I want this. I want that. This is what I should get. I need this. You should do this. No, stop worrying about what somebody else should do and start thinking about what can I do? How can I serve? How can I be a blessing to someone? Even if I don't get recognition, even if nobody sees and nobody knows, is that true? Does nobody see and nobody know? Doesn't the Bible says that God sees everything? Doesn't the Bible teach that God knows everything? Doesn't the Bible teach that God is everywhere present, omniscient, omnipotent, omni omnipresent? Doesn't the Bible say that? You say, but nobody's going to know, but God knows. And you know what? If you want men to know, then God will just erase your reward out of his heavenly book. He's not, I'm not talking about you're not going to go to heaven. He's, he's just saying you already have your reward. If you want to be recognized by men, you can be recognized by men and you will already have your reward. There's no place for another. 
But if you were to forego being recognized by men and let that go on, one day when you stand before the Lord, he has a written account of everything. He will reward you accordingly. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be rewarded by the Lord than by men. Right? All right. So, love seeks not its own. Love denies itself for the benefit of the other. Practical, we talk about a lot. Real practical thing. One of the big things going on right now is uh, two things that I can think of. And really, they're not questions of losing your salvation. And there's arguments on one side and arguments on the other side. Well, I can be a Christian and drink. You can't. You can be a Christian and sin. We're not, you can do whatever you want. Nobody's denying your right to do whatever you want. All things are, are, you're free to do. Paul says all things are lawful. That doesn't mean they're right. It doesn't mean that God acknowledges them as being right. You can do whatever you want. All we're saying is you're free. Do what you want. It's your relationship between you and the Lord, right? But all things are not beneficial to others. Right? As I said before, you know, um, I wasn't always a Christian. I could drink. I could drink. I could drink to excess. I get drunk. I did, very, did that very few times in my life. I didn't like it. I thought this is stupid. I wasn't even a Christian, and I thought it was a stupid thing to do. And some Christians can't figure out it's a stupid thing to do. All I'm saying is that I could do that. I still could do that and not be bothersome to me. But my brother, he had one drink, and he became a lifelong alcoholic. What if in my freedom somebody else watched me and saw me, and they started doing what I did, only they didn't have the tolerance that I had? Paul says, I'm not going to do that. I'd rather not drink than lead somebody down a path that's going to create, basically, make them a slave or captive to something that they can't be free of. I want good news. My brother got saved, and but he died at forty because he couldn't handle alcohol. So why are we as a church knowing that? Why are we fighting for our freedoms to drink? You can. We're not going to kick you out of the church. We're not going to do that. That's between you and the Lord. But I would bring another side to the equation. Why is it about you? Why don't we bring something else into the equation and say, what about the other people that I go to church with? What about the other people that I walk in company with? What about them? I don't want to hurt anybody. And I don't want to be a bad example for anybody. So I would rather put away my rights and do something that will be a benefit to someone else. And if that means that I don't drink, then so be it. I don't drink. I don't smoke. And you know what? In the long run, you're going to be healthier. You're right. 
and the people around you are going to be healthier, right? So listen, we're not, I'm not telling you don't do this, don't do that. I'm not telling you that. I'm just trying to bring another factor into the equation. And that factor is love. How many mothers, I should stop, but I just said one more example. How many mothers, when you found out you got pregnant, you said, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to smoke, I'm not going to do anything that can affect my child. And you did it. Same principle. Why did you do it? Because you love that little being that was put into your uh, womb that you have stewardship and responsibility for. And you see, if we carry that into the body of Christ and we have love for one another that way, then we will say, no, if it can hurt them, if it can damage them, if it will cause them pain or cause them to, to, to be stillborn, because there's a lot of Christians, I believe, that become stillborn or they become aborted because they give their lives to the Lord and then they go or they get involved in something and then they go. He said, if I'm going to be a cause of that, I will not do it because I will not damage another human being that I have stewardship and responsibility for. If we can do that in the natural, why can't we do that in the spiritual? Right? Okay, so that being said, I don't know why the Lord put this on my heart, but I did it anyway. So, um, but I can make it, uh, I can make it applicable to what we're doing this Sunday. So this Sunday, we're going to, and I'm praying, and I'm going to continue to pray that the Lord has his work and the Holy Spirit is not condemning us, but convicting us of things in our life that maybe some of the things aren't necessarily bad in the sense, but probably not beneficial to others, right? But maybe there's some things that we're doing that we've been tolerating and the Holy Spirit says, it's time to get rid of that, right? So I, I can't name everything, you know? Maybe it's a particular vice that you're struggling with. Maybe it's, a, it's a, you know, some type of uh, thing that you put before your eyes. Maybe it's a, a, a something from the past that you can't let go. Maybe it's things in your house that the Holy Spirit says, you need to get rid of this. I don't know what it is. You know, it could be t-shirts, could be movies. I thought about this one today. A lot of the video games that we play are demonic. And, you know, I used to play, I like video games. I used to play video games, and I would tolerate the demonic, because I enjoyed the game. I don't play them anymore. I play golf. <laughs> Not against video games. It's just some of the video games, some of them are becoming really openly, blatantly pursuing. You see what they happen in some of the, the media, some of the things that happen at the Super Bowl, and all that stuff, all of us is revealing themselves. And the video games are revealing themselves. And some of the literature that we read, we think are harmless, but, you know, they're not. They're not. And maybe as the Lord, as we go through this week, as the Lord begins to convict, we want to rid ourselves. I mean, it's an act of faith. It's a, it's a, it's a um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, 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 we just call it an act of faith, a declaration of faith. 
saying, God, I'm committed to going all the way with you, and if this thing is causing me or someone else a problem, I'm going to say, no, I'm tired of it, I'm done with it, I don't want any more, and I'm going to bring it, and I'm going to cast it into the fire, and I'm going to say, God, that's it. I'm done. Right? That's what this Sunday morning is going to be. And then we're going to have a bonfire on Sunday night, and we're going to take everything. If you don't bring it Sunday morning, you can bring it Sunday night. We're going to take everything. Man, if there's nothing in the bucket, good. I don't care. But I'm going to give us an opportunity. The Bible says when the Ephesians did this, there was so much stuff. Probably nobody thought there was that much stuff. There was so much stuff, it would have blown your mind. The Holy Spirit was working. And you know what they did? They burned it all. And you know what the Bible says? The word of the Lord prevailed, right, and grew mightily. In other words, revival broke out. So that's what we hope to do this Sunday. So as we're teaching, as you're going throughout the week, as you're spending time with the Lord and God speaks to you, they'll say, well, what if nobody else does? doesn't really matter. What matters is we've got to do what the Lord tells us to do. And what Bobby says, he says, delayed obedience is disobedience. Do what he tells you to do, and watch what God will do in your life. Amen? So.